The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Yo, dude, I had one more thing I wanted to add to the mix. Um, So I did the convenient thing of calling you after the podcast was over, as if this is useful. But uh, we were talking about fallow periods, and I've always thought nonfiction writers have a built-in period of time when you're away from writing, because all the work is reporting and research and interviews, and that allows some distance from the actual work of putting down pages. And that allows that space to kind of build that anticipation to build. So when you come back to the blank page, you know what you want to say, but you also are kind of, you know, lured back into the mystery of, of putting the words down. So it allows you to find that rhythm and keep it fresh. And so there, there's that whole period of time. Anytime you take on a big nonfiction project, there's going to be the research period, then the writing period. And I've had that several times in my life and I've always enjoyed that because it keeps the job fresh. So it's kind of baked into the nonfiction writer's experience, I think, that time away. So just wanted to add that. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning international journalist, author, and serial pundit Adam Skolnick returns for a mostly uncensored chat about assholes, mind-altering substances, the craft of writing, and the meaning of Jack Kerouac's 100th birthday. Adam's an award-winning independent journalist and author covering adventure sports, environmental issues, and civil rights for outlets such as The New York Times, Outside, ESPN, BBC, and Men's Health, among others. He's also the author of One Breath and was the ghostwriter and narrator of David Goggins' best-selling memoir and audiobook, Can't Hurt Me, master your mind and defy the odds and co-hosts the rich roll podcast on the roll on edition get ready we cover some ground here and had a lot of fun along the way please take this lengthy conversation with a grain of salt stay calm and write on and don't forget you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm where you can also sign up for email updates get links to merch and other resources for writers And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Greetings, scribes. 
we are once again rolling on the writer files and i am honored today to be joined by our bad penny as we used to say our bad penny adam skolnick is joining us once again hey man thanks for uh hopping on the pod thanks for having me kelton reed <laughs> you're a busy you're a busy guy you you um now co-host the rich roll podcast i'd be interested to hear about your your last session um when can we hear the latest they drop so i'm on there either once a month or twice a month it just depends on the schedule our schedules kind of converging but it's usually we record every other monday and then it drops on thursday so tomorrow we're recording this on a wednesday so tomorrow yeah. will be the latest one it'll be the one right after the oscars but we don't even get into any of the Oscar stuff. I mean, actually, we do. Uh, we're the we're <laughs> going to be the last people to discuss the Will Smith slap, or not maybe not the last, but towards the back half. <laughs> we're 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 lagging in the past. We've already talked about it, but yet it'll seem like we're really late. <laughs> <laughs> and we were lucky enough to talk about it like right before his official apology came out. So <laughs> then it'll drop on Thursday as if he never apologized. <laughs> funny funny stuff yeah that's the uh you know there's this rule the later you are the smarter you have to be in journalism okay and uh it's a good rule but we we recorded on monday but it comes out on thursday so there is a lag in there yeah there's that that lag also because i have this fancy microphone hooked up i am now at the far I guess the far western edge of my desk, which is closest to my bar. <laughs> Your bar, yeah, I love that. I love I've got that. a bar in the office. I'm, it's got a whole Don Draper setup. I've got a, I've mm. got a sofa, a napping sofa. Oh, okay, yeah, no secretary though. Oh, okay. Well, that's not good. My secretary is a 19 month old. <laughs> you need to work on that. <laughs> that sounds like a bad deal. <laughs> he just, he just, he just like bursts in, you know, all smiles. It's interesting because, you know, I was speaking with best-selling author Rosie Walsh recently, and she was saying, I thought one of the phrases she used was pretty apropos about, you know, having kids and staying productive. And she said that her writing process had basically become like a bum fight. And uh, <laughs> because, you know, she's trying to find five minutes here, she, you know, she's trying to stay awake, prop herself up in bed, doing mm-hmm. all these tricks, you know, whilst raising children. And, you know, she wrote a book you know, during a pandemic and mm. also had a second child during a pandemic Jeez. and, and it's just been kind of gone through it. And she said, you know, I never want the writing process to be like my last novel because it was just a shit show, basically. Literally. Yeah. But I wanted to talk with you about it because you and I both have young ones. Um, yes. And uh, yeah. How, how do you feel like it has really changed? Not just like your overall kind of outlook on on you know the future and, and life and whatnot but just like you know how has it really affected your kind of your process and your productivity well um what was the writer's name that you just were mentioning Ro- rosie walsh rosie walsh so first of all i don't think you can compare my situation to rosie's just because mothers they shoulder so much more of a burden and so um knowing what i what i observe around my house and how much my wife works and how hard she works to take care of everybody. And, you know, I, I, I can't imagine like being her and also having this thing like writing to do. So, you know, Rosie, I mean, hats off to her for being able to be that, stay that productive and sane while doing everything. Because I know, Mm -hmm. 
as even even really involved dads, we're we're a far we're a far cry from a competent mother when it comes to that's child true. raising. I mean, that's, that's how my experience is. So for me, you know, my wife picks up a lot of slack. My times the mornings and the evenings. So I, I I get up, you know, crack of dawn whenever he's up. So it's often it's like five thirty or whatever six, and uh, but I, I haven't woken up after the sun in quite some time. And so then we go downstairs and play and I'll stretch out and then I'll make us breakfast and we'll hang out. And then um, I'll re-engage at like 4.30 or 5 and handle bath time and that kind of stuff. So that's that's kind of how it works for us. So I have that whole chunk of the day to work. Um, part of that is that I've had, you know, I've had a lot of work. So I've had to get, you know, I'm working on collaborating with David Goggins on his second installment his follow-up to can't hurt me um and so that's like a real priority because there's a huge market for it so because of all that it's just that's how it's worked and then i try to fit in exercise where we can so we have a little bit of childcare help and so that that you know any any time in the ocean or or longer runs kind of happens on those days and so that's how it works and uh so far it's worked well it's you know we've gotten into a groove it wasn't always super easy but um it's definitely we're definitely in a groove now yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said it, um, moms who are writers and writers who are moms shoulder a lot more, uh, I think burden and responsibility for the most part, obviously every family is a little bit different, but, and stress. Yeah. Hats off to the moms yes. and writers, writer moms, writer moms. I don't know. Uh, I want to talk to you about a lot of things cause we have some catching up to do and okay. Name a liquor. I'll see if I have it here in the bar. This is a great, you to do it i'm pretty sure you have bourbon i have a, i don't you know what i ran out of bourbon because <laughs> <laughs> you drank it all i drank all the bourbon <laughs> that's not fair <laughs> you I, have bourbon usually i have a uh something called broken barrel whiskey okay. it's like one of those uh bourbons aged in pd barrels so that's what i've got yeah, yeah. it was a gift um, let me see. I bet you have tequila. I have tequila. I, I have tequila. I have tequila. Yeah, yeah. Your draper and your draper setup. Man, you are you are really, really a professional. If you have a bar next to your desk. Yeah, but you know, drinking is not like I like to have a cocktail now and then, beer and wine. But uh, I, drinking has never been a thing that has like lured me into its bosom and won't let me go. <laughs> I've had, yeah. I've had other, I've had other substances that have been that. Wow. Yes. Interesting. So it's changed your life in that way. Yes, definitely. Definitely a, a, a soberer version. Interesting. Yeah. It, I think it does that. I think it kind of slaps you in the face because it's, yeah. it's very real and having kids, um, wakes you up to the, to not only the miracle of life, but also the idea that you are mortal and you have to take yes. care of this person for well, as long as you're here. Yeah, for me, you know, marijuana was always the default substance that kind of uh, I used too much. And um, so for me, you know, I, I know how I know how absent minded and dumb I can be stoned. And so it was just kind of a no brainer to yeah. to be stay awake through this process. Yeah, yeah. Do, yeah. Have you found that with um, other of your writerly friends? I think of like, for instance, the screenwriter. Yeah, because he has he has couple kids now right yeah. has he kind of mitigated his i mean sorry are we'll, you asking me about marijuana usage <laughs> on <laughs> the air <laughs> we'll believe <laughs> no we'll cut this all part out <laughs> let's use generic friend a 
yes uh marijuana uh, usage who, who was a uh writer of some kind so writer generic <laughs> friend a and architect generic friend b both still get stoned <laughs> more than you more more often than me which is never but you guys like to get together no, uh, you know, I, I, I have seen them, uh, sparingly because of the pa- pandemic, but we just, we oh, just yeah. hung out and had dinner not too long ago. All the whole fam, all the families. That was nice. 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 Yeah. Um, <laughs> no libel suits here. Please. No. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Um, you can cut out all the marijuana stuff if you really want to. I don't know, because uh, honestly, I think um, I'll be doing some episodes of the Hey Creator podcast with Jeff Goins oh, cool. about uh, that very subject and kind of idea of you know some on the neuroscience of kind of finding different um access to different parts of your brain and yeah um, it it is interesting because um first of all i never used marijuana in a way to um be more creative or to write so you know there was Mm -hmm. the whole the great george carlin bit way back when is that he wrote sober then he got high and punched up his jokes and it worked yeah. that way for him but if that. he if he tried to write stoned you know from scratch it didn't work but he it worked as a punch up for him but for me you know when i first started writing i think i i, I enjoyed those creative bursts but somewhere along the way writing became a lot more uh, of a uh, staying clear staying focused um i i i stopped treating it as a sacred special thing and started treating it more as like laying bricks and yeah. um so for me, I've never used it in a way, even though I have enjoyed 
smoking weed and reading books in the past and you know like that that's always fun and getting into those worlds that way um and i have uh read my work high before but for the most part like 99 percent of the time it was never a tool for the creative mm -hmm. process for me it's more of a tool to relax maybe if you're going to shows it was a great tool for music but i never found it as this great tool but you know it's funny because we're talking you know we, we want to talk about kerouac now it's funny to be at this same age that kerouac was mm -hmm. uh, when he died or in that same age group and yeah. and see how he kind of was disavowing the beats and he was like hey i'm catholic i'm not a you know and he's even disavowing disavowing the kind of the zen part of himself mm -hmm. the same thing happened when marijuana was legalized it kind of in a way started losing its sheen for me then and now we have psychedelics psychedelics mm -hmm. are like there's going to be there are psychedelic spas i know someone who works in a ketamine spa now there's there's you know uh really psychedelics are being used to treat all sorts of issues in california legally now huh. um in spa settings with a therapist kind of leading you through it's happening right now and really? so the question is does that is that does that appeal to you and um it's funny like i find myself definitely a very progressive person but like not super interested in the fact that all everyone's political now like i liked it better when i was the overly overtly political guy and, and nobody was political now everyone's political and i'm like i don't really like being political <laughs> you know what i mean it's like i'm like i'm like kerouac right before he died that's what i'm trying to say <laughs> oh, but not but not drinking <laughs> i like that comparison yeah, yeah. We, I, I can't wait to talk about kerouac uh turning 100. but you know what i mean like how he kind of like you get to this point in the middle of life and it's almost like you're you're twenty and you know in your twenties and your early thirties. You think you think you got the secret, and everyone else is full of shit. And then later you realize, no, the secret's a moving <laughs> target, and everyone's full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> there is no secret, <laughs> right? Because that's exactly it. It's like, oh, come on, do you really know the answer? Are are you really are you really certain? Are you really? <laughs> And, and certainty, certainty set. is overrated. Like I, that's really the one is. thing I, I I was thinking about recently is like I talked to some people about this, but like the thing is, when I was the political one in the early '90s, and nobody else was, <laughs> I was you know bothering people about all these Ill, social and global and environmental ills that they weren't aware of. Right. So in, yeah. in a way, to do that, you have to be kind of an asshole. Like you have to be the guy that brings it up when everyone doesn't want to talk about it, right? Because that's how it yeah. is. And so now, basically, everyone is the, is how I was then. So everyone is kind of an asshole. Like, if you're going to be political, you're kind of an <laughs> asshole because you're not listening. You're, you're, you're certain of your opinion. You are willing to bludgeon people with it. Those are the uh, traits of an asshole. Hmm. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that I, I, I like a lot of progressive policies. For instance, I like Bernie, but Bernie's kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> In a lot of ways. Yeah. Right, right. That's all I'm he trying to say. kind of rams it down your throat. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's like, and I'm not criticizing these people because the world needs assholes sometimes. But, uh, you know, it doesn't mean it needs all of us to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a great book by Aaron James um called assholes a theory which i will recommend <laughs> um and it came out in let, let's see what was the public publication day it came out in 2012 but it really rose to prominence during the trump administration i wonder why yeah i wonder 
but it but it's great and it's it actually is kind of a he is a phd from harvard he's a professor oh. um of, of philosophy at uc irvine okay and um it's a pretty f- if he's if he if he graduated book. from harvard then he also got a phd in assholes <laughs> there you go <laughs> come on the show come on in on the show come on the show pal you know what I read recently that I loved? Let me try to find it. It's called The Wet and the Dry hmm. by Lawrence Osborne. And he's a novelist, hmm. um, former journalist turned novelist. But this is a nonfiction book about him trying to get drunk in the Middle East and other oh like, ex- like, oh, kind right. of, like okay. ex- not extremist, but yeah, other extreme kind of Muslim territories like South Thailand has a, an extreme Muslim area and uh, where they're where where real fundamentalists are kind of in power struggling to mm. gain power and Mal- Malaysia has a section like that Indonesia has it too and so he goes in, through Southeast Asia and then he's in like um the Hezbollah territory of Lebanon which also happens to be the wine region and he's mm. in Dubai and he's in all sorts of places so it's it's all about trying to get in Pakistan he goes to a distillery in Pakistan it's it's phenomenal it's not in any way, um, Islamophobic, in my opinion. So I know it comes off like maybe it is, but it's not. Mm-mm. It's Mm-mm. respectful of the place because he's a, you know, but it does come from that old school travel writer kind of place as well. He's an older British guy. He's probably um, 60 or something like that. Um, but uh, but brilliant writing. I mean, just absolutely exquisite. It's great. It's a great book, The Wet and the Dry. I, I recommend it. Cool. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, as you as a as a dad, also, um, is it interesting to you to revisit classic children's literature? I mean, I'm sure you haven't gotten into a ton of uh, stuff, but don't you start to see? Don't you have like a stack of picture books that? Oh, dude, we're deep in the Sandra Boynton uh, multiverse. (laughs) Yes, the Sandra Boynton multiverse is amazing. Uh, I love Sandra Boynton. I mean, are you kidding me? Sandra Boynton puts puts Seuss to shame. The use of repetition, the use yeah. of uh, alliteration, the humor, the use of Chattanooga, uh, piggy, piggy, piglity D, Sandy B, Sandy B. Shout out Sandy B. <laughs> Come on the show. I, I, I may or may not have Googled her net worth at some point. <laughs> she is. <laughs> she at this point is is the Michael Connolly of children's literature. Let's just say she's doing very well, and she deserves it. <laughs> When she starts writing books with Bill Clinton, we'll talk. Oh, my God. I, I don't like that trend. Like, <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it. Like, you know, it's one thing if you're um, Stacey Abrams, who happened to be doing this parallel the whole time. Like, she's a no- she's kind of been writing novels this whole time and just of late has become a politician. And she's been pursuing these kinds of things. But, like, you're Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, and now you're a suspense, right? I mean, I'm just not interested. <laughs> But they know so much. They know so much in, uh, intrigue. I'm, just, intrigue. I'm just not interested. I'm just like, like I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying don't publish them. I'm not a censorship guy. I'm just like, so I couldn't be less interested. Are you interested in that kind of thing? Like, I love no. the Obama's books, but like, that's a difference. Sure. That, that, that's, that's great. That's great writing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Speaking of Obama, I'm sure many listeners may remember this, but uh, he was interviewed by Washington Post Live at one point uh, a few years back and was asked um, about his memoir, of course, and his role as a writer. And 
literary and political influence of various writers and books. And he talked about five different books that kind of had influenced him as a writer. Mm. And one of those was uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac, again, whose uh, 100th birthday has just recently passed. And um, Adam and I started a conversation kind of about the kind of the import or at least the perceived uh, influence of Kerouac on lots of folks, including ourselves. But I think um, more interesting, well, not only this list, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Like it's just five books by five incredible writers, including Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, uh, Gandhi, and Shakespeare. But um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Kerouac's kind of influence. But not only that, um, I think specifically a link to this um, Lit Hub piece about um, this archival material that kind of turned up from his publisher. And I don't know if it, you know, I don't know if this was already kind of in the public sphere or not but um yeah there's some really cool uh letters back and forth between ginsburg and his uh editor slash publishers and yeah yeah and you got to look at those those papers his editor malcolm cow mm-hmm, malcolm yeah. cowley yeah so i guess the- who seemed to get him who seemed to understand that it was going to be a big hit and that the critics wouldn't really like it at first even though it got a good review in the New York Times. It got panned by on the road. Specifically, got panned by more than it got. That's right. Cheered, I think. Well, I thought it was interesting. Um, also, in the uh, in that here and now interview, it talks about how that review in the New York Times kind of ruined his life. Right, right, right. <laughs> the way. success ruined his life. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, he was, I think, trying really trying to be taken taken seriously as an author of import, and you know, I think one interesting historian who kind of maybe was pretty close to kind of some of Kerouac's unpublished stuff and helped to publish uh, whatever that latest kind of novella was that went on published in 2014. Blank on the name of it. But he said, I thought, pretty interesting about Kerouac's opus, just that, you know, and he had, he, he published like 20, wrote 24 novels, right? Right, right, right. And then, and he's best known for on the road, but but he felt like that it didn't really represent him as a writer. Is that is that basically kind of the gist? Yeah, I mean that. I mean, I think I think that's where he came to. But like from what I read, that and you know, he really did want to be one of the great American writers, which is an interesting place to start, right? Because he was a great mm-hmm. football player. He was a competitive guy, so he wanted to be one of the great American writers, which is interesting, given that he's his road there was to be countercultural, but in reality, he wanted to be in the canon of the culture. Um, So that's kind of that inherent tension that's there in him is probably, you know, he probably was dealing with that kind of those poles within himself quite a bit, I'm guessing. But um, so, yeah, so I think he, you know, he wanted to be that and he, what he did become that through creating a whole new way of writing really. And, um, and, 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 and by rebelling against the kind of mainstream norms of post-war America where it was like supposed to be the time of America being at its best, but he's seeing not just the racism and the issues there, but, you know, going into kind of migrant worker camps and, and wandering uh, the black neighborhoods of Denver and, and seeing all of that. But he's also, you know, the jazz clubs and everything, but he's also yep. seeing the, the, in, the kind of the, the issues with consumerism, the issues with not feeling happy in all this plenty. Mm-hmm. So, 
he's yeah. one of the first people to kind of point his finger at that in 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 the way he does and from a youth culture standpoint so also the beginning of youth culture really yeah yeah it's interesting yeah another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I was trying to imagine um, what that that would feel like um, at that time in history, because you know there was only like like one or two like chain like stores in America, you know, or yes. you know there would be the Sears and Roebuck or whatever the the Woolworths, mm. and and I'm sure every every single one in the country had kind of similar a similar look and feel and. And it must be kind of weird to not have, you know, kind of like this plenitude that we have now of like consumerism is just insane. Like, well, the, I, yeah. I was I was in 2015 sent by Playboy to um, Lagos, Nigeria, because uh, they were interested at the time in like this idea that you can't even travel without seeing the same brand names and the same storefronts and the same kind of mega culture that has gone and stamped itself uh, across. You know, that's what globalization is. Yeah. And, um, and so now, you know, is, is the best party town, Lagos, Nigeria, which is, is completely unique and cinematic place of mm. its own. So that was kind of the idea behind yeah. me being sent there. Um, and, uh, so yeah. And uh, back then, you know, States were everything was individualized. Yeah, you're right. Like Walmart was like a, a was, I don't even know if Sam Walton had started the first Walmart in, in the fifties yet. It probably was. In the no, 60s. but I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what specific brands there were, but you know, there was, there was only like a handful of like chain, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, all good stores where you could right. go in and you could get, you know, jeans and right. Who knows what, you know, but, but it's interesting to think like that, that must've been kind of mind numbing in and of itself to just kind of see maybe like one store in every big city had all the same stuff. But in truth, you know, there was all, all of this other culture going on in the kind of the whitewashed kind of, uh, the time. whitewashed America. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah. Post-war America. Mm -hmm. But you know, in terms of all the books, you know, I, I'm looking at the books I had just in my bookcase here and I have the four kind of, of the, of the main series I've got, on the road, Dharma bums, subterraneans, Big Sur, and I've got yeah. some poetry of of his as well. I've got two kind of assorted, and then I've got Mexico City Blues on ebook. Who has Mexico City Blues on ebook? Who has poetry <laughs> Adam, in an ebook? Adam Skolnick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have like Tristessa or Town in the City or any of these mm. other books that you know I never read any of them. 
Well, I think it's interesting because this historian, uh, this Kerouac historian from Lowell, Massachusetts, where he's from, was saying that his epic cycle of memorialization was kind of prompted by his having been haunted by the death of his brother when he was very young and then um, losing a lot of friends in the war in World War II. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of drawn to, of course, Eastern mysticism and and, uh, Eastern religion. And, you know, uh, uh, Ginsburg being a big part of that, obviously, also because, you know, he was drawn to that idea of impermanence. and, And at the same time, he was really, really just trying to establish a sense of self i mean he, mm. as you said he was really trying to establish himself as you know the voice of a generation in a sense and he did it he did do it, did it. it's interesting because you know in terms of i don't know the origins of zen buddhism coming to the u.s but i know because uh just you know my background in writing a lot about yoga at one time um i you know, I'm, I'm remember like the, the initial yogis that came to the United States were in kind of the 1910s and 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, Yogananda Parpanahansa, Yogananda, um, for self-realization fellowship. And then some other mm. others came and most of them ended up in California. Um, and then there was the second wave that happened in the sixties. And in between that you have Kerouac writing about it. So it's interesting mm-hmm. how that, that, you know, you, you gotta, you know, he gets credit for that too. I mean, he, not only the birth, he kind of laid the groundwork. He's not credited with actually starting youth culture. He just sensed it coming. You know, he was, sure. he was there when it started emerging and he put it down on paper. Um, he was there when, when it started to filter through the minds, like that there's this other, there's this other ambition to have other than the picket fence and owning this and that. And that's like this kind of internal quest. And so, and I think that, you know, when you're talking about Obama being attracted to it, I I mean, it's great because it totally fits, you know, he's a, he's a traveler, a wanderer by nature, just by the, Mm -hmm. by the course of his life and where it took him and, um, and a writer really first, um, before a politician. Yeah. And probably one of the first, one of the only, you know, maybe Abe Lincoln, uh, Thomas Jefferson were writer presidents. Like how many were there? I mean, Bill Clinton didn't start writing suspense novels till after. Well, didn't we want to read the entirety of the Constitution as literature <laughs> on this show? Want to heckle <laughs> heckle the Constitution? It's fine. It's the Constitution. Thank you. Thank you. For the it needs a it needs a good spell check, like a Grammarly. <laughs> Grammarly needs to do its thing. You know what? I signed up for Grammarly. I, I I don't really use it too much. I've found that it like doesn't really get the alliterations. I, mm. I don't think on the road would have uh, enjoyed Grammarly's treatment of it. Oh no. no. Well, I, I, given that most of the uh yeah, most of the language has been was invented uh by Kerouac and and there were so many ridiculous neologisms in there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a Kerouac apologist by any means. I think there is a uh there is something there I mean, he he just embodied this time and place as you said he was kind of the progenitor of this larger countercultural movement and if, if you see the impact that he had on that generation and then the, and then the impact that those uh then you know the hippie generation and and that countercultural movement was obviously very impacted by kerouac and ginsburg and um of course uh kesey ken kesey mm-hmm. who was hanging mm-hmm. out with those guys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then that linked to tom robbins right Sure. I mean, they're kind of all interconnected in a way. 
but um, yeah, it's really interesting. Kind of uh, if you could, you know, kind of draw those. A Venn diagram. A Venn diagram. A Kerouac Venn diagram. Maybe we should do that. Someone should do that. Someone should do it. Um, which is your favorite Kerouac book? I mean, I I think honestly, Dharma Bums to me it represented kind of the best of of what Kerouac was up to, because you know I think I think On the Road is a is this amazing book just for the you know kind of what it was doing at the time and and the language and you know the poetry and and so on and so forth. It does have its limitations. I mean, it does, obviously does have some some awful characters in it but um but who gives a shit right it's pretty it's pretty fucking well written and um despite the the content it's uh just just amazing like the language what it, what what troubles you just like there's racism and there's i don't know i think critics have said there's that it's bigoted and that there's yeah that there's um i think one one in particular i'm thinking of called it misogynistic mm -hmm. self-indulgent mm -hmm. corny but, you know, at the same time, it's like, yeah, but I mean, you could say that about a lot of young adult write, writing. Yeah, I mean, young what, adult what, novels, you know, it's, it's, it was written at a time for a specific group of people. These, these guys are like in their young, in their late teens, early 20s, whatever. You're, you're, you're on to something. You're on to something here because like, here's the deal, right? It was the right wing uh, censors, or not censors, but the right-wing culture barons back the in the conservatives. day. The conservatives. Yeah. that came out when it first came out and said, it's obscene, it's, um, right. it's trashy, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a ba it's morally questionable. And now right. you are looking back at a piece of work that is reflective of a certain time that had, that is an exuberant work that really pushed culture forward and yet you've got the people on the left saying it's obscene it's immoral <laughs> right and that's where we're at <laughs> like those that. people the people on the left who are shaming a piece of work from the 50s those people are are, are making uh rebels out of republicans interesting and that's the problem you see that's you 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 hit the you found it that's the threat that's the problem <laughs> we face now you know, really, yeah. really, because if you if you start forbidding things, then the forbidden thing becomes attractive. If you start saying "Don't say this" and say that, you know, you 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 you, yeah. you don't get the result you want. And uh, I'm not I'm not judging anybody for I love I want a more just, kind society too, but we're not going to get there by bludgeoning ourselves there. Yeah, and I also think that that uh, open debate is healthy, and there is right. a. Uh, yeah, I think it's absurd. And I think Dharma Bombs is, a, I think it's just a great book. I think it's a great, you know, it's a buddy book, but it's also about a search for enlightenment yeah. and uh, and then finding what? Really finding like the deeper, darker, more selfish parts of, of you know, just kind of being a, I don't know. I think, I think Kerouac found something and what he found, what he didn't like. Mm. <laughs> And again, I think what his what this historian was saying was that you know this epic cycle of memorialization and being kind of haunted by death and really trying to find this sense of self and this sense of purpose and, and like exploring all these you know kind of radical ideas and thought processes and, and spiritual practices. I think probably just for Kerouac, just uncovered this raw kind of hurt, you know, and that's part of that's just part of being human, right? It's yeah. about realizing you know kind of opening up the uh 
the heart chakra and and so that so, you know and there's that deep empathy that Kerouac has I think throughout his work that's you know he he feels deeply also I think you know Kerouac struggled with with his demons and and obviously one of those was drinking but he also I think um as you had said earlier was a football player and had sustained a lot of uh head injuries and I mm. think one the one theory that had been positive was that he had suffered from CTE mm. late later in his life and so that's what had driven him to drink and eventually just to drink himself to death because he didn't have any other way to you know deal with it interesting yeah. um I agree Dharma Bums is my favorite I think it is the exuberant kind of grounded Kerouac right I think it's I think most of the research for that one happened like right before on the road became a big hit if I'm memory serves so mm -hmm. it was like his mm -hmm. last road trip with his crew right before on the road came out he'd already published novels but that was the the one that um obviously made him a superstar and then after that it goes subterranean and big sur which is is um both are pretty dark in in their own way and, yeah. and um the, but the dharma bums kind of is the height of the search for self search internal search external um and ending, yeah. ending up on a mountaintop uh meditating and and just uh, you know identified with that so much i mean we both did i mean we both spent our times traveling all over and um and you know sleeping on friends couches and having road trips and i mean you and <laughs> yeah. i when we first you know, I, I, I am comfortable saying I don't think I'd be a writer if it wasn't for um, Jack Kerouac. Interesting. So, yeah. So yeah, he had a, he had a similar effect on me for sure. Yeah. And like when we first met, we were activists in this um, organization on the and we, we worked both in the Pacific Northwest, but then we stayed in touch through kind of rambling letters like the type that we've yeah. read about in on the road and like kind of like searching letters with kind of um, intentionally kind of Try, you know, trying in our own way to be literary and fun and free flowing and stream of consciousness. And that's kind of like what sparked in me the desire to write. So, yeah. so, uh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, Kelton. And fuck both of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's our fault. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry. No, I, I like it, but, uh, yes, but also, but also. <laughs> well, I think, um, actually, this, uh, this is an internal memo internal report on the Dharma bums by uh, uh, Viking editor Catherine Carver said she said I think uh, regarding the Dharma bums this is miles and even worlds ahead of on the road in fact I'm quite overboard about it I wasn't at all about the earlier books she didn't like she didn't like on the road right well I think Cowley anticipated people within Viking wouldn't get it like a lot of he yeah. got, he got it and understood it was gonna be a hit a lot of people didn't get it yeah yeah so this is from a from a uh, from her standpoint as an yeah. editor um, that she really was like, oh, okay, well, this guy's a, a real writer. And, right. and um, I think she said the book has a character even more memorable than Dean Moriarty and Jaffe, obviously, was, she thought, more believable and more human and, and yeah, pretty cool. And as we know, Jaffe was uh, Gary Snyder. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, fictionalized and Dean Center. was barely in it, right? Dean was barely in that one. Um, if I remember, yeah, if I remember correctly, I don't. He, he may make a cameo, mm. um, but I think was had a different name. Yeah, yeah, different name. He named him different. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Very interesting stuff. But all again, a memorialization of all of these real life characters that that kind of embodied this the beat generation, the beat movement. The yeah. Uh, 
I, by the way, a Jack Kerouac's grandniece uh, followed oh, yeah. followed me not too long ago. Her name is shout out Mallory Kerouac, and uh, we I'm had a, yeah, she's a photographer, uh, and um, we had a, a quick Instagram uh, message back and forth, and I said. I promise to not uh, because the name Kerouac, I had to ask, and I said I promise not to to uh, beg you for for stories. <laughs> he, she said, "To be honest, I don't really have any. He wasn't really a big family guy, as you can imagine." <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's not true. Interesting. I think it is true. Uh, but she <laughs> does good work. Be. Follow her on Instagram, Mallory Kerouac. Mallory Kerouac. Yeah. Shout out. Shout out. I don't know. I, what else do you have to say about it? Did you want to read a little Kerouac for us? Oh, should we read something? Should I just randomly? We just opened a random page. And of just, Dharma bums? I bet you got a bunch dog-eared. I don't. I don't know why. I dog-ear everything now. The big party was wild. Jaffe had a girl called Polly Whitmore come out to see him. A beautiful brunette with a Spanish hairdo and dark eyes. A regular raving beauty, actually. A mountain climber, too. She'd just been divorced and lived alone in Millbrae. And Christine's brother, Whitey Jones, brought his fiancée, Patsy. And of course, Sean came home from work and cleaned up for the party. Another guy came out for the weekend, big blonde Bud Diefendorf, who worked as the janitor <laughs> in the Buddhist Association to earn his rent and attend classes free. A big, mild, pipe-smoking Buddha with all kinds of strange ideas. I liked Bud. He was intelligent. And I liked the fact that he had started out as a physicist at the University of Chicago, then gone from that to philosophy and finally now to philosophy's dreadful murderer, Buddha. He said, quote, I had a dream one time that I was sitting under a tree picking on a lute and singing I Ain't Got No Name. I was the no-name bhikkhu. It was so pleasing to meet so many Buddhists after that harsh road hitchhiking. Sean was a strange, mystical Buddhist with a mind full of superstitions and premonitions. I believe in devils, he said. Well, I said, stroking his little daughter's hair, all little children know that everybody goes to heaven to which he assented tenderly with a sad nod of his bearded skull. He was very kind. I didn't mean to laugh at the name. It just struck. Diefendorf? So I, 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 I will edit, edit that out. <laughs> you don't have to. It's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you shouldn't laugh at Kerouac's a reading of Kerouac. You should not laugh out loud, I don't believe. <laughs> That's very you rude. Have to, what if you just re-listen to this whole thing and you're like, you know what? <laughs> We have to start again. Let's pick new subjects. <laughs> see if see if we can get through it without offending everybody. Well, uh, I know you have limited time uh, as a busy a busy writer, mm. and you have a deadline most likely. Yes, I thought a guest on the Writer Files recently something that she said was pretty funny and pretty actually true. She said that she believed that talking about writing counts as writing. Okay, so. Like in, in sh I think specifically, and I, I'm not, I don't want to take this out of context, what she was talking about and like hanging out with a writer friend, talking about your writing or talking about the writing process. She thought that that, that was just as important as sitting down and getting pages. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think mm. that, that some of the conversations I've had with writers throughout my life, you know, like, you know, writers as, as varied as like, Lucia Berlin or some mm. of my uh, classmates at, at CU Boulder in the uh, MFA program, people like Mark Balin or yourself, um, regardless of origin, I think aspiring scribes and or wildly famous scribes, just sitting down and chatting about the, the 
craft or chatting about what or chatting about a book is is very important i think hmm. ultimately how do how what do you feel how do you feel about that you're saying i don't have to work today because we just talked for an hour i think i think this counts this is right you're saying this counts i've been working this whole time <laughs> exactly oh um well i sign on to that of course um <laughs> No, I, uh, not to cheat you out of your page. I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think I, I can see both sides of it, but I will say that it's certainly useful to have people that understand what you're going through and the creative and how hard the creative process can be and how you can always feel like you're, you know, just beneath the wheel. Cause you, you don't know if it's any good. And most of the time you think it sucks and often it does until you revise it. So yeah. that having to deal with that over and over again does and take its toll and it's hard and plus the money is it's hard to make the money so like that's hard too so all of that requires fellowship right so uh yeah. to be able to deal with so i agree with that i don't agree that hanging out with a writer friend equates writing i think um <laughs> uh, so i think I, I i totally see the value in it but i don't equate it like i won't i wouldn't say <laughs> Like I spent the afternoon working if I spent the afternoon goofing off with you and having fun and ch chatting and talking about a book we read. <laughs> but that's not to dis discount what she's saying because I think there are a lot of people that um, ascribe to this idea of a fallow period. You need a, you need a period mm. to let the field rest and, and all of that. I know Bonnie Shoy, the, the writer behind um, Why We Swim, which is a, a hit book last year. She's a nonfiction writer, mm. uh, writes mm -hmm. for the New York Times quite often. Um, and is a friend of mine. And so she's working on a book, I think about that. I, you know, I, I'm more of like, because I came up churning out, you know, big page, big word count, um, yeah. assignments for a lonely planet. Um, I'm more words per day guy. And so, sure. for, and which I've said on your podcast before. So for me, it's like about the words on the page. If you didn't get words down on the page, then the pressure on my back just keeps building until I do. So that's how I feel about <laughs> right. it. And certainly that's the way yeah. it is when there's a deadline. So, but that's not to discount anybody's process because I understand everyone's different. And it's just, it's often the process you end up being comfortable with is the one that got you where you're at. And so, and I do understand that and, and, and respect that for sure. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, so many uh, authors that come on the show talk about the importance of um, having beta readers or a writing group or yeah. some sort of organization or you can tap into and, and rely on the you know so yeah, it's it, the camaraderie yeah that, it's funny comes like, along with the yeah. yeah and then journalists on twitter they're always talking about the fe fe you know the fellowships they get or the uh or the grants i mean i am like so the opposite of that like i don't have, i don't talk to anyone about my writing i don't show my work <laughs> to anyone i don't like i i don't apply for any fellowships um i don't do any of that and I feel like I am kind of, I do wish, part of me wishes I had it, but at the same time, would I give up anything that I've got going on in my life to get mm -hmm. that? Probably not. I, I am kind of a loosely affiliated with a nonfiction writing group here called the Invisible Institute. It's, it's, a, it's a West Coast version of a group that started on the East Coast. It's nonfiction mm -hmm. writers. And I get there, I'm in their group emails. I've gone to some meetings, um, but it, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't say a vocal member or even, I bet there seems to be new members that probably don't even know who I am or that I ever was a part of it. So, you know, I'm not that great at, at doing that group thing, but I think I've always been kind of a soloist indie guy. So, um, mm. I think that's my nature. I also don't think of writing as this great thing. I like doing mm. it, but I don't see it as like this, like I said before, I don't take it as a sacred act. I don't think it's this important thing. 
I don't, because in my mind, I treat it that way. I think to make it something that's approachable for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like I keep, I treat it as a craft. I never, I would never call a book a work of art. You know, I just never Mm. would. I don't, Mm. I don't think it's an art. I think it's a craft. Um, I think music, music is art. Uh, so I, 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 I just have a different approach to it. And I think it's, like I said, it's just a way for me to approach the work. It makes me feel comfortable approaching the work that way. So that's why I yeah. think my mind goes there. Um, and, and, and like, I, I don't, I don't really debate people on these issues. It's just how I feel. And I don't even really have these discussions much at all, but that is how I feel about it. Does this feel like they're a therapeutic, uh, session for you? How are you feeling right now? <laughs> Did you know that this, that this entire time that this has just been really therapy for Adam? I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah. Have you noticed that I've apologized for my point of view a few times on this podcast? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying I'm not an apologist, yes. but I want to apologize. <laughs> I am an apologist. I'm a self-apologist. <laughs> I apologize for myself on a near daily basis. Well, I don't think this show is big enough to be to be outright canceled uh no soft canceled soft canceled i I appreciate the the uh the the thoughts that it might be um (laughs) yeah um i think we should start a podcast called just flirtatious ruffians i think anyone would listen to that that sounds a little creepy like like it might get canceled immediately Flirtatious failed ruffians. podcast ideas failed <laughs> the flirtatious ruffians my new literary group who wants to join <laughs> it's based wholly on the teachings of jack Kerouac's. so Disembodied. are you are you the member of you're you're kind of the you're kind of the chief operating officer of your own literary group i guess everyone's so. part of your literary group <laughs> come on in come into the tent <laughs> Yes, um, we were we were we wanted yeah. to start our own thing, the news and news and reality. That's what you called it. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah. No, that was kind of our uh, that was our umbrella, a lo- very loosely assembled group of writers. And I think you know it was like uh, a handful of folks from University of Colorado Boulder from that MFA program, including Mark Balin. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But you weren't you in the not. MFA. You, you were the you were the undergraduate. No, 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 yeah. no. I was in the undergraduate creative writing program, but we shared a lot of the same instructors, which is great. And that's yeah. how I met. I mean, Lucia, Lucia Berlin. I mean, good lord. We've have we talked about her on this? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I picked up her book in Australia, I think. Yeah, that's right. And then that's right. We were one, talking her about second it. her second volume, the one that came out after the first one, kind of like you know, because she. And I just, I knew the name from you t- always raving about her, but I had never read her stuff. And I just, I mean, I'm an enormous fan. Yeah. Yeah. She was incredible. Incredible lady. Um, she, she had, yeah. a, she wrote a lot of like similar to the way Jack Kerouac wrote. I mean, she wrote about real life stuff, real life people, mm-hmm. and then just kind of put twists on it. I mean, from what I understand, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. She was very much in that, um, in that uh i think she could be lumped into the beats for sure yeah um and she spent a lot of time with those guys um of course you know a handful of them were still kind of hanging out in boulder when i was there and then um ed dorn and and i think the director of uh creative writing program at naropa you know 
and Ginsburg's disembodied poetics there. And they were, you know, and they'd all been in that kind of same beat, like jazz. Um, I think Lucia's first husband was a jazz musician. Mm. Yeah, she wrote about alcoholism and she wrote about kind of, uh, you know, just constantly working odd jobs to support her family and just kind of the grind of and uh, yeah of, uh, r- real life shit i think i think she was always like a writer's writer people who were writers knew about her and and adored oh, yeah. her and then um but she never had the commercial success until a manual for cleaning women came out like towards the end of her life and it got rave reviews all over the place and that was posh it was posthumous. that was posthumous okay yeah it was and she became a new york times bestseller and then the second book came out after the second collection yeah um Evening in Paradise, which I actually even liked better. I read that one first. So I read Evening in Paradise first. Mm, then mm-hmm. I read Manual for Cleaning Women. So maybe I would have, if the reverse is true, maybe I would have liked the first one. But I, I liked Evening in Paradise better because it had the international feel and it goes all the way back to like when she lived in Chile as a diplomat's daughter or a businessman's daughter. So mm-hmm. it was um, super interesting for me to kind of read the whole scope of it. But I devoured the first and then immediately got the second and went into that. So or the second, yeah. I devoured the second, then got it the first, something like that. <laughs> I'll tell you a weird story, um, or not a weird story, but a funny story about um, hanging out with Lucia in her office because um, she was my, uh, she, she was, was your advisor, she advisor. loves you. Yeah, yeah, she was my thesis advisor. So we, we got to be very close and uh, I really adored the time that I got to spend with her. Just, you know, one-on-one, which was pretty rare, but, you know, I would go in a couple times a month and we would, chat and just hang out and um talk about the work of course but then she would give me a tarot reading in her office <laughs> i love that <laughs> she'd pull out a deck of cards and do a tarot reading for me it was very funny oh. and uh it was totally cool amazing yeah so that's my there you go story. A, a literary legend read your tarot cards what did she say <laughs> she said um i'll never tell <laughs> And that's how we end a podcast. (laughs) The end. Uh, What started out as a Kerouac celebration ends in a Lucia Berlin celebration, which is, I think, it should be. A moment of silence for Lucia Berlin and her amazing, amazing spirit and work. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to do this, man. Um, I appreciate your your candor, your wisdom, your, your, oh, you know who, who said some nice things about you recently was Brandon Presser. And I didn't actually know that you two knew each other, obviously from the, uh, travel writing world, but, uh, it's interesting because he had reached out and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And then I pinged you and was like, do you know this guy? And you acted as if you didn't like you, you were like, I'm reading his book, but like, you didn't make, you didn't make any personal connection. So I had him on and I, I was like, I, think I, th- I thought you had said, I thought you had said uh, that you ha- were having him on. I didn't. I'm sure. Cause I, I, I think, you, I think you both assumed that I put it together, but I hadn't. Oh, okay. Um, so then when he was on, I was like, Oh, you know, Adam Scott, but I finally put it all together, but okay. it was funny. Cause like, I, I, I guess maybe I just missed the, I just missed that. But yeah, he has some great things to say about yeah, it. Yeah. 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 He's, he's a, he's, he was another one, uh, that came from the from the cauldron of Lonely Planet writing to to um, kind of get his own publishing 
career going and it's it's exciting yeah. farland's great it's a great great piece oh, yeah. of work and and um very cool and a, a cool idea and a, a cool story and he put you know he put a lot of love into it so i'm happy to see it do well as am i and uh again um best of luck to you uh wh- wh- where are you off to now are you just gonna hunker down and i'm in the hunker mode some- uh yeah i'm just hunker. working on um this David Goggins uh, follow-up. And so we're, we're working on that and hoping to have that out by the end of the year um, in audio and in print. And uh, so that's kind of where my main focus is right now. And then, uh, you know, th- there's other stories on my radar coming up, but the first order of business is to get this manuscript put together. Knocking on wood, um, break a leg there. And of course, we will uh, have you back soon. And I hope to see you in person sooner rather than later and um, get a chance to, uh, you know, have a have a scotch. What did we used to drink? We used to drink single malt scotch. We did. Let's drink a single malt scotch. Let's drink a single malt scotch and live stream a full reading of the Dharma Bums. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I love that idea. I'm sure listeners would tune into that. <laughs> I wonder how many people would be there at the end. Like one, one and a half people. <laughs> one, 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 and it would be, it would really just be like, not, not even someone paying attention to the screen. It would just be like a screen pointed at the at the ceiling. It would be, Eric, it would be Eric Rashke. It would be Eric Rashke in Amsterdam, and he'd be like asleep, kind of sleep drooling on his couch, <laughs> drooling on his phone. Um, guys, hello. Anyone that anyone still there? Anyone any any questions? Eric Rashke shout out. <laughs> Rashke, wake up. <laughs> Rashke. All right, buddy. Um, I'll let you go. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kelton Reed. It's always a pleasure. Hey, pleasure is all on this side of the microphone. Uh, there's been some pleasure on this side of the microphone, I assure you. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. <laughs> <laughs>